This is episode 289 with strength coach, coordinator of athletic performance at Rebuilding by Northwest Rehabilitation Associates and owner of the Salem Speed Academy, Kyle Davey. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Please connect with me anytime through strengthrunning.com, on Instagram at JasonFitz1, or on the Strength Running YouTube channel. This episode was created to help you have healthy, happy hamstrings. Joining me is strength coach and sprinting expert Kyle Davey to help us better understand injuries of the hamstring and what we can do in training to prevent these types of problems. And if you happen to struggle with injuries, get my best advice on staying healthy long-term at strengthrunning.com prevention. And if you enjoy this podcast, support our sponsors who help us keep the lights on. First is the MOBO board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. Invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with an innovative rocker board, and it's set up on these two fins. You learn how to improve stability with proper mechanics from the foot up. You can learn more at moboboard.com, and don't forget code STRENGTHRUN10. It'll save you 10%. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes AG1. I love this stuff. It's the most popular greens mix available on the market today with 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. To make taking control of your health even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase or a monthly drop if you want to make this part of your ongoing nutrition plan. You can see all those details at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. Okay, my guest today is sprint expert and strength coach Kyle Davey. Kyle was previously an adjunct professor at Corbin University, teaching classes on motor development, motor learning, and performance. He's a regular columnist at Simply Faster, the coordinator of athletic performance at Northwest Rehabilitation Associates, and owner of the Salem Speed Academy. In this conversation, we're discussing hamstring strains, what can cause them, screens for assessing risk, how you can reduce the risk during training, strength training, and more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Kyle Davey. Hey, Kyle. It's good to be speaking with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm excited. We are doing a deep dive on hamstring injuries today with advice on both preventing and treating these kinds of injuries. So Kyle, maybe we can start really broad. What are some of the most common hamstring injuries that runners will typically experience? Yeah, I, w- I would think that sprinters are probably more susceptible to hamstring injuries than, than distance runners, but running of any kind certainly stresses and uses the hamstring muscle group. The, the, you know, there's three hamstrings muscles that create the hamstring muscle group, and it's it's usually the one on the, the outside, the biceps femoris, that gets that is strained when a hamstring injury occurs there. Yeah. So sounds like strains are probably the most common form of hamstring injury. Is there anything else that runners might experience um, typically with you know either one of these three 
hamstring muscles that comprise the entire hamstring group. Uh, is it just strains? Well, I mean, there's three kind of levels of, of hamstring injury, and then you grade one, grade two, and grade three. Uh, some of the more severe ones, the more grade three ones, I think they tend to be sort of in the center of the muscle belly. So it'll be kind of right in the middle of your thigh and on the backside of the thigh, obviously, where the hamstring is. And that's that, you know, when you get to a grade three hamstring tear, that's, that's a real serious issue. And it takes a long time to recover from. I actually had, um, I don't know what grade it was. I was in college. I played football at a, at a small school here in Oregon. And my junior year, I had a pretty, a pretty nasty hamstring tear. I actually got really lucky because it was, it was on the very last day before the medical red shirt, uh, like cutoff date, basically. So if I'd gotten hurt one day later, I would have burned an entire year of eligibility, basically. So I, I got the year back, thankfully, but you know, my hamstring was, it, it hurt bad. And I was black and blue for my butt all the way halfway down my calf. I was on crutches. Uh, it was, it was really wicked. And I, I didn't get in hindsight, knowing what I know now, I can see that I didn't get, um, I got good, but not excellent rehabilitation and care afterwards. So really, it took me a full 18 months before I was able to sprint again. Even the following season, I was really only able to get to about 90% top speed before I could kind of just start feeling it cramp and kind of talk to me a little bit. And luckily, I was a defensive end, so I didn't, rarely did I have to get to the to those high speeds, but but I couldn't. So if I was a receiver or any other position, that, that would have been really problematic for me. But I think distance runners are also more susceptible to kind of the more high hamstring tears in the more gluteal region sort of right below, right below the butt, the gluteal fold area, really, really high. And that can get really confusing. It may sort of feel or appear almost like a piriformis syndrome or almost like a hip labral issue. So those can be more difficult to tease out. But yeah, a strain, they all kind of feel the same, but obviously the, the grade two hurts more than a grade one and a grade three hurts more than, than a grade two and, and so forth. So strain is really kind of a non- non-specific term that really just means kind of some, something happened there. But you know, level one, level two, level three will be the more formal grading classifications for those injuries. Can you give us a brief overview of, of what each one of those grades really means? You know, I, my understanding is that a grade three hamstring strain is almost like the hamstring is torn. The muscle itself is ripped and needs to heal. Is, is that correct? And, and what are the differences with a w- grade one and two? Yeah. So grade three, and, and I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a I'm athletic trainer or, or a physical therapist. So um, really, I'm not entirely sure of the, the actual classifications, but I, I'm with you. And then my, my understanding is that a grade three tear is om- almost a complete tear in the muscle belly itself. And I think every, every type of strain, every type of hamstring injury is a tear of some sort, right? And it's really just the difference is how much of the muscle body or the muscle belly rather it is torn. And obviously, the more fascicles that are torn, the longer it's going to take to heal the more painful it is and um, the more difficult it is to manage. So grade one is usually classed. I mean, grade one injuries are um, from a morphological level. I'm not sure how you would classify it. Maybe only 10% of the muscle is, is torn, but really on a practical level, it, it kind of just appears as a minor tweak. And those things you can usually overcome really within two or three days. If you have quality rehabilitation and quality return to play process, you can get back really quickly. The level two ones are a little bit more tricky because it's kind of in that gray area where it's not um, super duper severe, but you still kind of feel it nagging at you and it takes a little bit of time to come back to, but the grade three tears, those are the ones that are more severe. And that might've been the one that I suffered, suffered from. Cause you know, as I said, I, I was on crutches, I was black and blue. It hurt really bad. Um, and I couldn't hardly do anything for two, three, four months. Um, and then really it took me 18 months before I was able to really fully get back to it. So, you know, I think the, the big picture is that a grade one is relatively minor and you can bounce back pretty quick. 
the grade two is going to take a little bit of time, but you should still be able to get back probably within a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And the grade threes, those are, those are season enders. Yeah. From what I know about hamstring injuries and, and these kinds of specific strains, it's one of the last injuries that I would actually want to get because it seems like uh, they are severe. They really just take you out of running completely and the risk of re-injury is very high. So I would love to know, you know, if if there are runners listening to this who want to prevent a hamstring injury, is there a screen or some sort of diagnostic tool that might be really helpful at evaluating a runner's risk profile for hamstring injuries? Yeah, I think so. And we're, we're cautious when talking about this type of, uh, you know, risk profile and screening because we can never promise or guarantee to fully prevent, uh, to fully prevent an injury, right? So I can never tell a kid, Hey, if you do this or an athlete, if you do this, you're guaranteed not to get hurt. And there's, this is kind of a nuanced debate within the community. Uh, what, what you can do is take groups of people and say, Hey, in general, if we apply this intervention, then to a whole group of people, then you have a lower likelihood of uh, the amount of people that are going to get hurt is now statistically lower than another group who did not have this intervention. But even within that, we can't look at one person and say, hey, if you do this, then you're less likely to get hurt or you're not going to get hurt. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of similar to stereotyping whereby like uh, drawing from the work of Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and thinking slow, he describes that a stereotype um, and a stereotype in not in a, uh, a negative or a hurtful sense or a demeaning sense, but just in general, the word stereotype means things that are generally true for a group of people. And obviously we can take that into a a social level, and that can be really, they, those things can become harmful and hurtful. But in, in general, from a scientific perspective, the stereotype is a thing that is true for a group of people. And what we can't do is then look at one person that's within that group and say, this is true for you because you belong to this group, right? So I can't look at one single sprinter and say, because you're a sprinter, this is going to happen to you because this happens to, to sprinters. What I can do is say, hey, in general, sprinters are more likely to pull hamstrings than healthy adults who don't sprint, just recreational adults. But even then you can't hone in and look at one person and say, because of that, you're more likely to gear. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like a chicken or the egg type situation. But uh, what we can do to address your question though, is we can look at hamstring range of motion. My, my favorite assessment is uh, the Yerdin. It's called the Yerdin test. I think it's, I think it's pronounced Yerdin. It might be Jordan or Jordan. It's J-U-R-D-A-N. He's a, he's a Spaniard, a physiotherapist from, from Spain. Uh, essentially, we're looking at hamstring extensibility and knee extensibility. You have an athlete or a, yeah, you have the athlete laid down on a table in a neutral pelvic position. It's sort of similar to a Thomas test. And you basically put yourself in a sprint position. So the knee goes up such that your thigh is basically plumb vertical to the ground. And then you extend your knee as high as you can. So you're basically just kicking your foot up towards the roof. And it winds up looking like you're in mid-flight in a sprint. And really all we're looking for is, is there enough range of motion is there enough flexibility, active flexibility in this position in order to achieve what we might see in a sprint or in a distance running? And so it's very, very obvious. Some athletes I've tested, they really can't kick their knee up at all. So they're almost stuck at like 90 degrees at the knee. So really quickly, we can see that these athletes need more flexibility work. And then on the back side of it, we're looking at the other side, the other leg is the extension of the hip. And so do you have enough hip extension range of motion uh, in order to you know, basically just access a quality stride. So we can look at those things. We can look at strength interventions as well. We can look at things like eccentric strength and compare those bilaterally. But there's not a lot of clear data in terms of how much strength is necessary or how much strength is required in order to prevent 
a hamstring pull. But I mean, I mean, I think in general, we want to look at hamstring range of motion. We definitely want to look at sprint technique and sprint kinematics. Pelvic position is a huge one. And then we want to look at strength as well. All right. So it sounds like if you want to reduce your risk of hamstring injuries, and of course, you're always going to have some risk. I mean, after all, we're training for marathons and doing all the other things that we do as runners. There's a risk profile to that. Range of motion needs to be adequate. But the way I'm understanding it too is that like, look, we're distance runners. We are not gymnasts. Do we need like the flexibility of a gymnast to kind of get the benefits of this proper range of motion and to reduce our, our injury risk from hamstring strains? It sounds like we just sort of need to be moderately flexible as opposed to be able to, you know, put our flat palm on the ground from, from that bent over position. Is that right? Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think from a literature perspective, that's a question that's yet to be answered. Um, and that's what scientists do is they get down into the details and they want yes or no answers, essentially, right? They, be, they try and eliminate the gray area. So from a literature perspective, I would say we don't know how much hamstring flexibility is required or necessary in order to mitigate hamstring risk. We also don't know if there's a cutoff by which point, hey, if you have this much flexibility, you're good, but any any further flexibility doesn't do you any benefit. We don't know. But my personal opinion is that actually too much flexibility is probably a negative thing. We do want a little bit of stiffness at the end range of motion, just a little bit, because it actually kind of helps you bounce bounce back. So if you, if you think about like a rubber band, as you lo- elongate that rubber band, it naturally wants to pull back a little bit on you, right? And then when you let go, it snaps back into place. And so if if you have a rubber band that is super, super, super flexible, you can keep pulling it forever and ever and ever, and it never really wants to snap back at you. But in running, if you get to that end range of motion, you want to have a little bit of stiffness. That way there's almost a little bit of a natural mechanism by which your foot and your leg is going to start coming back towards the ground. And it kind of helps you a little bit because it starts putting the brakes on for you without you having to use your muscles to do that. So that's my personal opinion. Now, where the cutoff is, what the exact degrees and range of motions are, I don't know. I, I don't think that, I don't believe um, that is known right now. But in general, you know, we don't want, it's, there's a Goldilocks situation. We don't want too much. We don't want too little. There's a sweet spot in the middle. Is it the same for strength as well? Because it sounds like being stronger is probably a good thing. I don't think any coach would say we want weaker runners. But is there a point where you're too strong? I almost want to say no to that, right? Like, how can you be too strong? Maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, in the context of a distance runner, I, I think the answer is no. I don't, I don't think a distance runner, I don't think strength would ever become a risk factor in a hamstring injury for, for a marathoner or a half marathoner or any kind of distance runner. I know there's actually a lot of literature that I'm sure you're familiar with and perhaps even other guests on the podcast have touched on that. Strength training is actually great for marathon runners for a lot of ways from injury, injury prevention uh, also, just to aerobic performance and do, do, benefiting the aerobic profile there. For a sprinter, I think that you could make an argument that too much uh, too much concentric strength could probably be an issue in, in the hamstrings group or even in the, the flexor group on the front side. Uh, it's really a balance because obviously, as your 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 leg flexes up and swings forward, you have to be able to counteract that force on the back end, uh, literally on your backside, in order to pull that that leg back down. So I can see some people maybe making an argument that if there's too big of an imbalance between, say, the hip flexors and the hip extensors, for instance, that uh, your hip flexors could kind of overpower your hip extensors and put the hamstring in a in a negative position. But I, but I don't think that having too strong of hamstrings would be an issue even for a sprinter. 
Yeah, you'd probably just have to be an enormous bodybuilder for it to start to get in the way. <laughs> Your hamstrings <laughs> are just not too strong, but just too large. Yeah, I think size is definitely a big thing. And on a morphological level, with hypertrophy, we get changes in pinnation angles, uh, which affect the velocity, the shortening velocity of the muscle group. So for somebody like a sprinter, having too too big of muscles uh, you know, in, the, in your lower body could actually become a problem because as, as muscles get bigger and stronger, they don't always get faster, which is sort of a, it feels paradoxical, but just on a physiological and morphological level, uh, that's just a, a physiologic fact. And there's lots of different reasons for that from fiber type transitions to penation angle changes. So that's why in general, uh, sprinters, they don't do bodybuilding training profiles and you look at them and they, they look pretty jacked. They look pretty ripped. Part of that is because their body fat is so, so, so low generally that they just look really, really shredded. But in general, they're not doing these big sets uh, like a bodybuilder would because being big doesn't always equal being fast, right? Yeah, there's that that fine line, right? And you mentioned you want to be in that Goldilocks zone of not too inflexible, but also not too flexible. And I, I think that the the strength area is also this area where you want to be in that Goldilocks zone too. Let's talk a little bit about the pelvic position that you mentioned earlier being a potential risk factor for hamstring strains. Um, what What is the what is the pelvic position that's damaging or in other words, you know, potentially riskier? Is it, is it, uh, an anterior pelvic tilt, a posterior pelvic tilt? How do we think about that? Well, I'll preface this by saying it's, it's kind of individual for, for every person. And so in a lot of ways, I almost feel like that's a kind of a cop-out answer, but I, I also think it's the truth in that everybody's going to have their own profile. And I think that's part of the fun and part of the art of being a coach is understanding an individual's bandwidth and sort of what's an acceptable amount of normal for each individual athlete in the context of kind of human beings and athletes in general. But in general, an anterior pelvic tilt lengthens the hamstring muscle group. And so if we're, if you're entering big ranges of motion, like a sprinter would, where the, the knee is really, really high and the hip is really, really flexed, your hamstring is going to be elongated and lengthened in that position. So if you're coupling that with an anteriorly tilted pelvis, then it's lengthening your hamstrings even more. And we can do a quick test. I don't remember where I saw this some, somewhere. I wish I could give credit where credit is due, but essentially you anterior, just stand and you anteriorly pelvic tilt, make a big arch in your lower back and dump your hips as far forward as you can. And then keep your legs straight and try and kick it as high as you can. And you're going to notice it's not going to get very far and you're going to feel a really significant stretch really quickly. And then you kind of stand normal or even enter a posterior pelvic tilt and you do the same thing. And all of a sudden your foot is going way, way higher. So that's a test that I, it's a, a teaching tool that I sometimes use with athletes when I see that they're not quite understanding or not buying into what I'm saying about the pelvis being important. But when you are in that anteriorly tilted position, because the hamstrings group is elongated, when you get to those end ranges of motion, like in like a mid-flight in a sprint, for instance, um, it does put the hamstring in a little bit more risk because as a, as a group, as a muscle group lengthens, uh, the muscle becomes less, there's less potential for force production there. So as a muscle group gets longer, it's essentially weaker. And then same thing as it gets too short, it also gets weak. So there's a Goldilocks effect there. So if you're putting your hamstrings group in this elongated position and you're extra strength stretching them with the anterior pelvic tilt, you're putting a lot of demand on that muscle and you want to be able to access as much strength as possible. So in general, I'm not advocating for running with a neutral pelvis by any means. Um, most of the fastest athletes in the world, I think it's probably more so true for women than it is for men. If you watch still shots of like a hundred meter dash, 
at a very high level, they almost all are in an anterior tilt. This is kind of where that individual bandwidth comes into play. But in general, we don't want that to be excessive. We want it to be in a controlled position. And I do think that closer to normal is probably a safer risk profile for many athletes. And isn't it also true that your your pelvis isn't always in the same position? And, and especially with the faster you run, your pelvis is going to be in a dynamic position. It's going to be moving around a little bit. It's going to be in, in more of an anterior tilted position than at other times during the gait cycle. So is this also something where we can't necessarily take all of our lessons from a single still picture of an athlete who's running? Yeah, that, that's a great point, Jason. And the, the pelvis is really interesting because the, each side of your pelvis actually moves opposite of the other one during a gait cycle. So as you, for walking, for instance, when I step with my right foot forward, then my, the, my right pelvis is going to sort of shift inward. My left one is going to kind of shift outward. Then as I'm stepping forward, the right one will shift back a little bit and the left one will shift forward a little bit. And they sort of work in this opposite kind of motion. And so we think of it as one unit that always moves together but they, they're sort of moving opposite of each other. And it's also really easy to get caught uh, in a two-dimensional kind of mindset where I'm only thinking about the sagittal plane and that anterior and posterior tilt. But truthfully, the pelvis moves in all three planes of motion and it has to rotate and it has to uh, laterally tilt as well. So yeah, I think you're right that it's it's really kind of a complicated deal. And I, I don't think the pelvis is fully appreciated or fully understood, even by myself, um, as much as it should be in terms of sprinting. Well, you know, I've had a lot of SI joint problems as a college athlete. And so I have maybe a bit more of an intimate knowledge of the pelvic position because of all those injuries and hanging out with a trainer more times than I would actually want to. (laughs) And so thankfully, that's not an issue for me today. But let's start talking about prevention, because I think that's like the number one thing our listeners want is, okay, these hamstring strains sound like a bad injury. It's not something I want, but I still need, I, I still need to do my strides. I might be doing some speed development work. Uh, I'm obviously going to be running races near the end at close to my maximum ability, hopefully near my top speed. So what are some things that we can do in our training to give us as much resilience as possible to prevent these injuries? And, and, you know, let me preface this with saying like, you know, I, I know we've talked a little bit about this Goldilocks zone that we want to be in when it comes to pelvic position, when it comes to strength and flexibility. So, you know, I, I know this is kind of like a tricky subject because there's no one right answer and, you know, you don't need to be super flexible. So it's not like the answer is like, let's sit around and do a bunch of static stretching all day. So, you know, if you were to design, you know, a program and it had several high level principles in that program for distance runners to help prevent hamstring strains what might those be well this is this is a really interesting question and i, I recently had a, a case study with a collegiate soccer athlete she her coach actually referred her to me she had pulled a hamstring and had been bothering her kind of off and on for six or eight months and she finally wanted to get it addressed so uh, i actually wrote uh, an article on simply faster about her return to play case study. I only had four weeks with her, but by the end of the four weeks, she was uh, she was reporting that she was back to 100%, able to sprint pain-free. Um, and her, I paid kind of special attention to her mental state throughout. Um, I say mental state more as in like her confidence and her belief in her ability. Because oftentimes, and Jason, you might relate to this, but when you have an injury and it's recurring and it's nagging, it's easy to get kind of caught in a cycle of fear and caught in a cycle of doubt. 
And I think that just self-perpetuates and makes it harder to, I mean, to truly recover and to truly get better. So uh, that was an interesting experience for me to go through with her and, a, and an interesting article to write. But in general, I think there's there's eight categories that I that I look at when I'm considering kind of hamstring health. So we've already talked about a few of them, the hip and the knee, range of motion, the flexibility, sprint mechanics and running mechanics is another huge one. We want to talk about high speed exposures, high speed sprinting, high speed running, strength training at different working angles, at different uh, angles of the hamstring, both considering from a hip and from a knee perspective. Eccentric strength is still important for hamstring muscles. A few years ago, I think eccentric strength was kind of considered the holy grail at the time. And then we kind of quickly found out that there's more to it than just Nordic hamstring grills and, and having being really strong eccentrically. The position of the pelvis, lumbar pelvic control is important. I actually think that the gastrocnemius, your calves play, play a role there. And I can explain why. And then aerobic development as well and having having a solid aerobic base, which you know obviously is not going to be an, an issue for most of most of the distance runners here. But I'll kind of quickly um, go through each of these and, and just explain really briefly. We've already talked about the hip and knee range of motion. Technique is obviously very important, part- particularly for sprinters. Poor technique definitely places the hamstrings at a more um, at a higher risk. Uh, then the, the concept of high speed sprinting and high speed exposures, and it doesn't have to be. I think high speed is a relative term. So for a distance runner, high speed might be something like 120 percent of race pace or 150 percent of race pace or, or something like that. For a sprinter, obviously, high speed generally refers to 90% and above of your of your maximum velocity. But really, all we're talking about here is graduated. It's just graduated exposure. That, that's all it is. So what we're saying is that if you never do high-speed running and you never, ever run fast, then your body is not ready. Generally, it's not ready to handle fast running. And so this concept of microdosing has become really popular and I think quite efficacious of it really only takes a couple exposures a week, meaning meaning a few reps, a week of this high speed sprinting. So there's been some really interesting papers where they've, they've only done three sprints per week, like high speed sprints. And they've shown that that's been sufficient to mitigate the risk for hamstring injury, which is really, really interesting because it's really, really easy to do. You set aside five or 10 minutes in a practice or in a warm up, and you have athletes just hit really high speeds. You do that for two or three reps. And then you've successfully mitigated your opportunity for hamstring risk throughout the week, which is, which is really fascinating. But again, to me, it just comes down to graduated exposure if you've never lifted weights and then you try and one rep max, you know, on your very first lift, that's, that's not a good recipe. And it's the same thing for sprinting. If you've never ran fast or you haven't run fast in forever, and then you just try and bolt, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Strength training at different angles is important. So, I mean, the hamstring group, it, it crosses, it's a, it's a two joint muscle. So it crosses your hip and your knee, which means it's a hip extensor and a knee flexor. And so when we talk about training at different angles, we're basically just saying, make sure, make sure you do both. So an example of uh, like knee flexion would be a seated hamstring curl or a Nordic, uh, a Nordic hamstring curl where the hip is basically staying in the same position, but it's the knee that's moving. And then uh, a hip dominant one is the opposite where the knee is staying in the, in the same position, but the hip is the one that's moving. So something like a, a back extension or a glute ham raise or uh, a straight leg, kind of you put like a cable attached to your ankle and you keep your leg straight and kick back like a hip extension there. Just make sure that you're working at different angles. Eccentric strength is still important. It's not the holy grail, but it is still important. So I do think Nordics have a place and eccentric strengthening have a place. On the lumbar pelvic control side, and we've talked about that in the pelvic position being important. The reason I mentioned gastrocnemius is because the, the gastroc also crosses the knee. And so it is a weak knee flexor. And so do I think this makes a big, big difference? No, I, I don't. It, does it maybe make a 5 or a 10% difference? Maybe. And if that's the case, then I think it's worthwhile to at least address with at minimum a couple sets per week. 
So just doing some calf strengthening there, I think is important because again, it'll help control the knee flexion and help control the, it'll help aid the hamstrings in controlling your knee while you're running. So just give it a little bit of attention. And then on the aerobic development side, uh, really what this comes down to is that when, when you're tired is when technique breaks down the most. I think this is more so applicable to probably sprinters and more high-speed athletes than distance runners. But when you get tired, technique breaks down. And so if you're in great shape, you're not going to get tired quite as quickly. And then technique won't break down. And therefore, your, uh, your risk profile will remain kind of on the good side for, for longer in a competition, if that makes sense. So oof, that was real long-winded. But those are the eight kind of categories that I, that I think about when I consider hamstring mitigation. Yeah, the the aerobic fitness one is really interesting to me. Um, you know, Kyle, if you've ever gone to mile 24 or 25 of a marathon and watched the human carnage, you will see that phenomenon at work with people's <laughs> form absolutely falling apart because they're under such high levels of fatigue. And I tend to think that that's not usually too problematic for a mile or two at the end of a marathon. But if you're trying to race a mile, and your form is falling apart with 400 meters left, you are still running so fast that the speed of that race, it, it can be, you know, extra uh, risky from an injury perspective. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on because distance runners usually don't have to worry about their aerobic fitness. That's what we're developing most often. One thing that I want to touch on is this, this almost micro dosing of speed work and you know, I work with a lot of beginner, intermediate, and slightly advanced runners. And, you know, one of the common themes that I see in their training is, is a lack of this repeated exposure to very fast running. And, and I think there's always been this big difference between running fast and running hard in my mind. You know, you can run fast without it being very hard. Can you talk about some, you know, easy ways to add speed work into a training program that isn't very difficult. You know, I know the workouts that my teammates on the track team did when we were in college, you know, all the sprinters, you know, they were walking around a lot, but look, at the end of the day, they were running so fast for a fairly high amount of volume that I wouldn't want to do those workouts. Right. But what are some ways that a distance runner could add a little bit of very fast running, not necessarily 100% maximum velocity type work, but, you know, 95 to 98% of max speed. How can we add that to our program without it being so fatiguing that we can't do the mileage, the long runs and the other workouts that are necessary for our training? I think that's a great question, Jason. And I think that, uh, you know, technique is, is still important here. And so for athletes who haven't had a lot of exposure or coaching in, in maximum velocity mechanics, that would be one of the first boxes that I'd want to check just to make sure that you're in a safe pattern. Now, you don't have to have impeccable technique like a 100-meter dash or a 200-meter you know, 200 sprinter, but that the big boxes are checked, like you're not heel striking, your, your, um, your pelvic position is in an okay position before we get to those high-speed exposures. And it, it can be quite simple, really. You can set up a camera from the side, you can film, and as long as you have a basic idea of what what to look for, then really teammates can verify themselves. And I do this all the time just with my iPhone for a quick and dirty analysis with athletes, just film, watch them right there. But I think a build-up run or a fly run is a really easy way to accomplish that. So this is a simple, uh, really common speed work whereby you, it's not an explosive start. You kind of really ramp up. So you'll need, you know, 30 to 40 meters of space. Well, total, you'd probably want more closer to 50 or 60 meters of space. But if you give yourself a 20 meter kind of buildup, 
where you're, it's not an explosive start. You're starting slow and you're just ramping your speed up. You then set up two cones that are 10 meters apart from each other, and that's the top speed zone. So your job is to be at top speed or near it when you cross the first cone and then hold it for that very short 10 meter segment. And then once you cross the second cone, you nice and slowly decelerate on the backside. So it's almost like, um, you know, when you're speeding up on the freeway, most people hopefully don't just pedal to the metal as soon as they get onto the on-ramp and, and go. You'll nice Speak and for yourself, Kyle. Okay. Yeah. Speak <laughs> for yourself. You've never <laughs> seen me get on the highway. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, it's akin to slowly pressing the gas pedal down and then holding it at, you know, flooring it for two or three seconds, basically, and then, you know, slowly letting off. And, and then two seconds over a 10-meter segment is, is quite slow. So that, <laughs> that analogy falls apart a little bit. But that would be a really interesting way to do it. Another way you could do it is a workout called a, an in and out, whereby you, you you sprint really quickly for a short segment, maybe 15 meters, and then you hold that same pace like a cruise control. So however fast you're going at the 15 meter segment, you just hit hit the cruise control and keep that speed for another 15 or 20 meters. And then when you get to the, the, the next cone, the next zone, then you floor it again and go as fast as you can for another 15 or 20 meters. Uh, for a distance runner, I'd, I'd probably prefer the, the fly run method because it'll be a little bit less fatiguing. And those would be really good ways to get some some speed work in there. And the nice thing about the fly runs is that it's it's mostly a neurologic stimulus, which means it's not really going to affect your ability to perform aerobically, which is nice. So you can still hit two or three of these in the beginning of a practice. And then I, I, I would expect that your your aerobic, your distance work really wouldn't be affected. The quality of the work wouldn't be affected by doing those. I'm going to add a little footnote to this conversation here. I One of the things I love doing on this podcast is having subject matter experts from a wide variety of different disciplines, you know, strength coaches like yourself and other types of coaches and mental performance consultants, because we often talk about very similar things in, in very different ways. So you just described a fly-in, which is something that a sprinter will typically do, you know, part of a warm up or very early season. This is for distance runners. This is often called a stride and it's mm. usually a little bit longer, but it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> it is an acceleration to about 95 to maybe 99% top speed. It's not a full sprint. And then you decelerate on the back end and the whole thing, you know, maybe a hundred meters, it takes you 17 to 22 seconds, depending on your ability. And, and it's exactly that it's, it's a gradual acceleration into almost your top speed. And then you only hold that for a couple seconds, probably roughly 10, 15 meters or so. And then you decelerate to a stop. So it's, I think it's so fascinating that we are incorporating many of the same types of workouts and just calling them different things. And yeah. so a distance runner would probably say stride or, or strides or maybe striders, though I prefer strides. Um, but, but I love this because it's like, it's an easy lift, right? This is low hanging fruit. Uh, this can be done as a warm up before your actual workout. You know, you do a couple of these and then you're ready to go. And, and I think is the benefit to doing it before your actual workout, the real meat of the training session is the benefit there because you're fresh and because it is a neurological type of stimulus where you want to be training the neuromuscular system, you don't want to be under high levels of fatigue. Is it more beneficial to do it when you don't have the fatigue of an entire workout in your legs? Yeah, hundred percent. I think the big two factors there, if you do it at the end of a distance workout, you've, you've already got tons of mileage on, not only are you not going to be able to reach the same speeds, so it really might not be a speed workout for you. You just, your muscles are gassed. You can't get that fast. But you're also more 
more at risk for getting hurt if you try and push it under those fatigued positions. So, or fatigued um, conditions rather than positions. So, yeah, do it in the beginning. I would not recommend. Uh, I wouldn't say it's 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 a. I would rec- actively recommend against doing speed work at the end of a distance workout for these reasons. Yeah, for sure. I think whenever I've done this in a team setting, you know, with my coach, with my cross country or the other distance guys on the track team, we would always do any kind of very fast running at the beginning of a training session. Because like you said, it doesn't really negatively impact your ability to complete an aerobic workout. And now that I'm like thinking back to some of those brutal college workouts we did, many of those workouts weren't aerobic at all. You know, you're running like mile, two mile, you know, 5k race pace. And, and Lord knows that's not aerobic, but (laughs) still you're not, you're you're not negatively impacting your ability to complete that workout just by running, you know, four fly-ins or strides beforehand where you get close to max speed. And in fact, you're probably going to perform even better. Well, yeah, I I think you're right. And I'm Jason, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe not. You're probably more disciplined than I am, but I'm pretty notorious, uh, with myself for slacking in my warmups. And I, I always under warm up and like my second set of everything almost always feels easier than the first. And every time I do that, I just kind of punch myself a little bit because I know that means that my my first set was probably still an extended warm up. But every summer, uh, just because it's beautiful and nice weather, I've made it a point to try and get my mile time down. And my scores are not my times are not impressive in, in, in the distance community, but I managed to get sub six at least for the past couple summers, which is pretty good, pretty good for me. I'm you know, six, four, two twenty and consider myself a lifter more than more than anything else. So. I feel good about going sub six, but I've, I've noticed that when I add in a little bit of faster work in my warm up, and then when I go to train at, at my training pace, my my training pace almost feels slower than it actually is because I've just kind of like contrasted it with some really fast work. So as I'm looking down at my watch and I hit you know the hundred meter mark and the two hundred meter mark, I'm often finding myself like, hey, you got to slow down a little bit, man, because I felt I feel like I'm running faster. Or I feel like I'm running slower than I actually am, I guess, because I just did some speed work right before. But sure enough, when I just go and I kind of show up and do a little stretch and then start running, it's usually the opposite. Like, oh man, I feel like I'm on track, but I'm behind. You got to speed up a little bit. So maybe maybe you can relate to that too, or maybe it's just me who slacks in the warm ups every now and then. Yeah, no, I definitely relate to that. <laughs> I mean, I'm typically better at warming up than I am at cooling down. So so I'll I'll probably do a pretty good warm up, but then as soon as the actual running is done, that's when I start to slack off a little bit. If, if we're going to talk about our shortcomings here, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, Kyle, can we talk a little bit about some of the strength exercises that you think are particularly helpful for this area? You know, I know you've mentioned a couple of them, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about specific exercises. And then if there's a proper way of doing these exercises, I think that would be helpful because I know we've touched on the eccentric part of the muscle contraction, which is when the tendon, or I'm sorry, the, the muscle is lengthening while under load, as opposed to a concentric muscle contraction where it's contracting under load. So do we have to do our exercises differently? And in which exercises you think are the most helpful? Yeah, well, I, I think we sometimes forget too that most, most, you know, the traditional exercises go through an eccentric and a concentric component. So you're, you're going to get both of those things when you do like a deadlift or, or anything like that. And you can overload just the eccentric component with like a Nordic hamstring curl, or you can choose to only do the lowering part of a lift, but it's kind of a pain in the butt. So, you know, if you're doing any traditional weightlifting with the machines or with weights, you're getting both the eccentric and the concentric component. So I think that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about 
eccentric training, really we are doing eccentric training as long as you're doing anything that's remotely traditional, like a deadlift or a machine or, or whatever it is. But, you know, in general, I think that um, being strong is a good thing. Um, I prefer, for the most part, doing Romanian deadlifts versus traditional deadlifts. And I think the traditional deadlift has become popular, more popular in the last probably 10, 15 years as powerlifting has become more popular. But I think that a Romanian deadlift is better at developing the hamstrings muscle group than a traditional deadlift is. And really the difference is that Romanian style, you're just more stiff-legged and you're not squatting quite as deep into it. It's just more of a horizontal front and back motion with the hips. And there's less of a vertical up and down kind of squat component. So, I mean, doing those things with two legs that you can get a lot of force into it and, and get strong is a good thing. Doing single leg work is another good thing. You can do single leg Romanian deadlifts, single leg deadlifts. Um, I've enjoyed using uh, sliders, basically like furniture movers over like a carpet flooring. And you can do things like bridge, uh, glute bridge, um, eccentric and concentric uh, knee curls and extensions from those positions. And like I said before, I, I still do think that true eccentric straining, true eccentric overload, like a Nordic hamstring curl has a place. So I think as long as you're doing a, a semi-well-rounded program and you're following some sort of progressive overload, whereby over time you're accumulating either more reps or more weight, uh, then those are, those are telltale signs that you're getting stronger and good things are going to happen. I'm a big fan of simplicity. So would you say that if a runner is healthy and doesn't have this big history of hamstring injuries, that it's probably fine just to do some traditional weightlifting because those big exercises, you know, those big compound functional lifts typically, you know, almost always include the eccentric part of the muscle contraction. And, and maybe if you do have a history with hamstring injuries and you're particularly susceptible to them, are, are you the person who might want to add some Nordic hamstring curls or, or some more eccentric work to the more traditional program? Yeah, for a time, I think that can be beneficial. And so it's not something that has to stick around forever, but you can go through cycles where you know, for, hey, for my next six or eight weeks of strength training, I'm going to focus on the eccentric component and I'll do Nordic curls for one, you know, once or twice a week for a total of somewhere between three to six sets a week. So it really doesn't even have to be that big of a time commitment. I mean, we're talking, if you did three sets of five reps per week of Nordic hamstring curls, for most people, unless you're a very trained lifter, I would expect you to get results that way. And I mean, that's we're talking 10 or 15 minutes. So as long as you're doing a well-rounded program, you're, you're strength training year-round, you're strength training your whole body, if you have extra concerns, you can add in some of those extra things, like an eccentric component for six or eight weeks. And then just go back to your normal, normal well-rounded lifting. And I think one thing I've learned to appreciate more so over the last couple of years is that you know, a healthy, a healthy human is a healthy athlete and a healthy person is a healthy athlete. So if you're taking care of yourself mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, obviously all these things are super important and perhaps even more so for distance, you know, distance runners, marathoners, whereby I would think mile 24, like you're talking about, if there's something mentally or emotionally or spiritually going on in your life, I would expect it to show up in mile 24 more so than I would expect it to show up in, you know, rep six of a set of eight or something like that. So as long as you're taking care of yourself and you've got a good fitness kind of plan all around, then I think we'll be good to go. Yeah, your your weak link certainly comes out to play at mile 25 of a marathon, no matter what it might be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kyle, let's cover some random questions that that I thought of, as, as well as a few submitted by some listeners as well. Um, we talked about aerobic fitness, which was something that I was really interested in hearing about. It sounds like most runners, distance runners in particular, don't really have to worry about that. Um, I'd love to talk more about ibuprofen and 
the role of, you know, this non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, because I have read that this can interfere with uh, not just injury recovery in general, but really specifically with any injury that could involve uh, tendons. And so obviously, if you have a strain in the hamstring, you're probably also dealing with some, some tendon issues as well. Would you recommend that you know, besides the acute pain phase at the very beginning of an injury, how should runners think about, you know, taking these kinds of over-the-counter NSAID type drugs? I've got no idea, Jason. This is so far out of my, out of my wheelhouse. I wish I had a better answer for you. This is honestly the first I've heard of, of ibuprofen uh, and hashing injuries. Uh, you know, I, I do think somewhere deep in my mind, I've got a recollection of uh, these like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories might interfere with muscle healing and muscle regeneration. I mean, inflammation happens for a reason. If it sticks around too long, it, it can be a bad thing, right? But in general, inflammation is a signal to the body in order that there's a problem to, to come and heal something. So, but I, I don't know if it interferes with, uh, you know, how, how it, how it interacts with big, big injuries in general. Okay. I've also seen that pool running or aqua jogging is something that runners typically do for cross training when they're hurt and they can't do any load bearing exercise. I've read that this isn't a great idea when you're rehabbing a hamstring injury because it doesn't make the hamstring contract eccentrically. Is, is this something that you've heard and do you think runners should avoid this form of cross-training until their hamstring is healthy and behaving itself? Well, I've actually got access. I have, there's two underwater treadmills at the facility I work at and I, I love them. So I, I love aqua jogging. It's true that the eccentric component is essentially eliminated, but there's also a little bit more of a concentric demand because you have to push against the water instead of pushing against just the air, right? Which is essentially pushing against nothing. So some of the um, some of the arguments against it are that form changes when you're underwater, which is definitely true. And some people contend that the way you run underwater is not the same way you'd want to run on the land, which I think is probably true, but I don't think that there will be a transference there. So in other words, I think if you're somebody who's been running and you've got hundreds or thousands or tens of thousand miles on your legs, I don't think that running for 30 minutes or even you know 30 hours over the course of your life in a pool is going to change the way that you run on the land. And, uh, you know, one, of, one of my friends, we were talking about this motor learning once and he said, hey, if you have a rock in your shoe and you don't take it out for eight hours, it's annoying and you walk differently with the, when the rock is in your shoe but as soon as you take it out, you're kind of back to normal. You're not, you're, your walking isn't changed for the whole rest of your life because you had a rock in your shoe for a couple hours. And so I, I think there's a lot of truth to that here as well. Where I do think the aqua jogging can be really, really important is it's essentially zero impact cardio, basically. So if you're somebody who's been running forever and you might have degenerative disease in your knees or your hips or your lower back and the, the impact on the, on the whatever surface, the blacktop or wherever you're running, if you don't want to do that for 20 or 30 or 40 miles for you know, whatever mileage you're doing for the day or for the week, you can get in the water and you can accumulate the aerobic load without accumulating kind of like the osteopathic load or accumulating the load on your joints. So for a lot of people, it's a really uh, wondrous tool. And I personally witnessed people who have been marathoners, who've done it their whole lives, and then they, they had to stop running because their knees hurt or their hips hurt. And they get into the pool and they feel like a million bucks. And there's been a few times where people have started jogging in the water and they say, man, I haven't been able to run in 20 years. This feels so good. And then they start crying and then I start crying and we all get emotional and their tears fill the, fill the pool a little bit in the best way possible. And so I'm, I'm really a fan of the underwater treadmills, but you just have to know what they are and how to use them. 
It's a way to accumulate an aerobic load without accumulating the stress on your joints. So as long as you're cognizant of that and you use it wisely, then I think it's a great tool. Yeah. Is, is there a big difference between an underwater treadmill and the more classic version of pool running where you're in the deep end of the pool and your legs aren't touching anything? You know, you're wearing one of those flotation belts. Um, I've done way more classic pool running in my life than I want to even remember, but uh, <laughs> I've never actually used an underwater treadmill. Jason, I think you would love it, man. I, you know, I've, I've never done the classic aqua jogging where you're wearing a belt. So I'll just preface this with that, that I don't have personal experience with that. But you don't yeah, want it, Kyle. It's I, the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> I, I believe you. I believe you 100%. And underwater treadmills are nice because you've you got a TV there. You can watch whatever you want, Netflix, Sports Center, and, and run, which is cool. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would imagine, obviously, without having personal experience, I would imagine that there's, there's a huge difference. And so I've been told by people that have used, uh, you know, used the underwater treadmill. Because obviously, when you're on a treadmill, you have something to push against, right? Your foot hits the ground, and you do have to, have to push forward. You're not, you're not waiting like a duck would. Uh, you know, with just with an aqua jogger belt on. So yeah, I, I would imagine that it's quite a different experience. And the other nice thing, I mean, you can you can turn you, you change the speed of the treadmill, right? And you, you're forced to keep up. And the pools we have are Hydro Works pools. I, I love them. I'm, I'm familiar with any other you know, underwater treadmill technology or companies, but the Hydro Works pools are great. There's jets, so you can turn on the jets and run against those. It's essentially like running against a really strong headwind, and so it it, it can turn into a really significant. Uh, like a lactate workout, right? Really, really, really quickly. Yeah. I remember when I was injured for about a week in indoor track, my senior year in college, I had, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a tendon issue and running hurt, but pool running didn't. And so I was doing about two hours of pool running every day, split into two different sessions. And usually at least one of those sessions, but sometimes two included some type of of workout. So I was running harder than just, you know, a normal easy effort in the pool. And because there wasn't any impact, you can actually do that. And, and you can accumulate much more of a cardiovascular load on your system than you can with, you know, that osteopathic load that you mentioned before, because there's no impact. So it could be a really wonderful way of maintaining your aerobic fitness when you're injured. Can you speak to the fact that because there's no impact, runners can often feel great coming out of the pool, but you know, their, their legs are actually a little bit deconditioned from that osteopathic perspective. And I've seen teammates and other runners get hurt within a couple days coming out of the pool because they are aerobic monsters, but they just don't have the strength both in their muscles and joints to withstand all the impact that, that they're being, you know, uh, that they're experiencing because the fact that they're so fit. Yeah. Wow. What a great, what a great point, Jason. Honestly, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before I considered it, but I, I, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from. How if it's, it's kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, how, you know, if you've never lifted a weight or you haven't lifted weights in six months or a couple of weeks and you just show up and you try to one rep max, see how much weight you can pull. It's probably a recipe for disaster, right? Same with sprinting. If you haven't reached top speed, you haven't sprinted all out in forever and you just go and you go for it. It's probably not a good idea. This idea of graduated exposure is that you want to slowly but surely accumulate volumes to make sure that you're never hitting yourself with this with this huge overload at one time. So I think that's a brilliant point, Jason. If you're if you're somebody who's injured or for whatever reason you've been spending a lot of time in the pool, you're gonna to want to make sure you accumulate your volume over ground slowly to make sure that your tendons and your joints are ready to handle that. Because although your cardiovascular system and your your muscular system may be ready for it, if the tendons and the ligaments haven't had that same exposure, then they they may not be. 
Yeah, and it's probably true too that the more time you've spent in the pool or or even not doing anything, we could just say rest completely, the more of an on-ramp you need to your previous training load. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think it takes a little bit of time to to accumulate that volume and it sh- really I don't think it should take too much time, maybe five or six workouts, you know, over the course of, of a week or two, but you definitely don't just want to jump right back in and pick up where you left off if it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, for sure. Kyle, this has been really helpful for me as I wrap my head around uh, these injuries that I know runners get very frequently, but maybe are a bit more common with field sport athletes or sprinters. So I really appreciate your expertise. Is there anything that I, I didn't cover or that you would like to add to this conversation about hamstring health and prevention and, and getting those hamstrings strong and happy and healthy for distance runners? I think doing doing a periodic check-in just with yourself and doing a, a hamstring, you know, like a flexibility assessment and just making sure that you're cognizant of these things, I, I think can be important. So just a periodic screening, hey, am I flexible? Am I feeling good? And then especially if you're if you're wanting to accumulate a little bit of high high speed work, doing these check-ins on on the day of to make sure that you're feeling good. So you might notice, hey, I'm feeling a little bit tight today. I'm just not feeling quite 100% today. Might not be the best day to really push it and see if you can get to like those striders or those those fly runs, those build-ins. Could be great days for for the aerobic load and accumulating the aerobic conditioning. But I think like I was kind of, as I had mentioned earlier, I've, I've really appreciated more of the past couple of years that a healthy human is a healthy athlete. And if you notice that you're not quite feeling 100%, you're a little tight, you're just feeling a little bit slow mentally, physically, emotionally, Sometimes those are not the best days to go pedal to the metal and to go to go all out. So I think, you know, that's that's the only thing I think we haven't covered so far, Jason. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And there have been so many times where I have gotten onto the track, not felt good and then regretted getting on the track because, you know, I further tweaked a problem or I created a whole new problem. And I, and I think just being really self-aware of how your body is doing on any given day, especially if you have a history of hamstring issues and you're about to do, you know, a a really challenging workout, whether there's a lot of speed work in it, or it could just be a very long, grueling workout where you're going to experience a lot of fatigue. Those might be the days to do a little bit of a check-in and see if your body's ready for it. So I appreciate you mentioning that. I think that's important. Yeah, I agree. And if it's a long, slow day, you know, you'll probably be good, but and when I get into my car, if the check engine light comes on, then uh, I'm not going to go do any street racing that day. I might, I might drive down the road. I might be able to drive, you know, back and forth to work or to the to the grocery store. But I'm definitely not going uh, pedal to the metal trying to win a quarter <laughs> quarter mile street race, right? I don't street race anyways. But the analogy holds, right? When the check engine light is on, you don't want to go pedal to the metal and go all out. You can probably do relatively long and slow stuff, um, but those are not the days to really push it 100 percent and try and break any records. I love that analogy. When the check engine lights on, it's probably okay to go to the grocery store, but let's not do the cross-country trip or drag race <laughs> down the street. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Uh, if, if folks want to learn a little bit more about you, your work, can they go online and find you somewhere? Yeah, I run, um, I run the Salem Speed Academy, the salemspeedacademy.com. So people can find some stuff there. Uh, most of my more, uh, I've written quite a bit for Simply Faster. So the Salem Speed Academy does have a blog, but it's really targeted more for the general population. The Simply Faster is where I've written more um, kind of for peers, I guess, or other strength coaches. And then, you know, I do have a Twitter account. People can reach out to me that way. And, uh, you know, just my email as well. It's just kyledavy209 
at gmail.com. People can feel free to email me and we can dialogue that way. Wow, that's very generous of you, Kyle. Thank you. And I will include links to all of that in the show notes that listeners can find on Strength Running. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity. And that's our show today, my friends. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show, share it with your running friends or your club, or invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com. You can also support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on over here at Strength Running HQ. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First is one of my favorite strength and performance tools, the Mobo Board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. It was invented by famous physical therapist and author Jay DeSherry. And Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with this really cool rocker board that you set up on these two pieces of wood, almost like fins. And there's a hole where your four little toes are supposed to be, which effectively forces you to drive your big toe into the board to improve your stability. You can hear Jay and I discuss stability training more in episode 275. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but going into this, I was pretty arrogant (laughs) with my first session on the Mobo board. How hard can it be to balance, right? Well, I was humbled pretty quickly. Even if you're a good runner, better balance, stability, and proprioception are all going to help you have a more powerful stride and prevent more running injuries. You'll learn how to improve the efficiency of the kinetic chain from your hip to your big toe. Because as Jay likes to say, it's not just how strong you are, but how well you use that strength. Save 10% with code STRENGTHRUN10 at checkout at moboboard.com. Again, that's STRENGTHRUN10 at moboboard.com. I'm also grateful for the support of Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. I think I mentioned in this episode that I love simplicity, and I personally struggle with eating as healthy as I know I should. What can I say? I'm just a man of convenience, so I'm finding their product, AG1, very helpful to cover all of my nutrition bases. One scoop is going to give me 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a greens superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any gaps that might be in my diet because I know I have those gaps, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. Wonderful in the early afternoon hours. And I know I've mentioned this too as well, but I've got three kids and they are in two different schools. And I know I've got to support my immune system because I am just no match for the germs that they bring home. But what I really love about AG1 is that it changes. Over the last decade, they've made over 50 improvements to the formula based on the latest research to make all those nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason and you'll see the great offer they've put together for our podcast listeners. You'll get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase, which will make traveling with AG1 very, very simple. You can sign up for a single shipment or for a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. All right, that's our show this week, my friends. I appreciate you being here for being part of the strength running community and all of your support. We'll be in touch soon. 